Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 339. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We're going to jump straight in with this week's show because it's a big one and it's a made up by it. It's a fantastic story by Brandon Sanson. And at the end, we have JJ Campanella's Science News. And like I say, it's just fantastic. And it's made all the better by a great narration by... Nick Cam. Mm-hmm. So I want to jump straight into the main fiction. Just purely, it is nearly two hours long, but it is a fantastic story. Defending Elysium by Brandon Sanderson. I'll give you a little heads up about Brandon Sanderson. He has published nine solo novels with Tor, Eletrantis, The Mistborn Books, Warbreaker, The Way of the Kings, Words of Radiance, and The Young Adult Fantasy, The Rhythmatist as well as four books in the middle grade Alcatraz versus the Evil Librarian series from Scholastic. He was chosen to complete Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series, the final book, A Memory of Light, was released in 2013. His newest novel, YA novel Steel Heart, was released by Delacour in September 2013. He currently lives in Utah with his wife and children. Brandon teaches creative writing at the Brigham Young University. This story first came out in Asimov Science Fiction in October, November 2008, edited by Sheila Williams. And what a great story it is. It is narrated by the one, the only, Mr. Nick Cam. Need I say more? All, I, well, all I'm going to say is he better get himself down to Worldcon. That's all I'm saying, Nick. Get yourself there. 
For those who unfortunately want to know a bit more about Nick Cam, I will put a link on so you can go. He is an actor. Yes, Everdale. He works all the swaps and he's done some great adverts as well. So I'll put a link link on to kind of Nick's little bio if you want to have a look at him. See what he actually looks like. It's upsetting. It's upsetting. <laughs> so the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Defending Elysium by Brandon Sanderson. The woman thrashed and spasmed in the hotel bed. Her hair was matted to her head with sweat and her uncontrolled motions seemed almost epileptic. Her eyes, however, did not have the wildness of the insane. Instead, they were focused, determined. She was not mad. She just couldn't control her muscles. She kept waving her hands in front of her with awkward movements. Movements that seemed strangely familiar to Jason. And she did it all in silence, never uttering a word. Jason switched off the holovid, then leaned back in his chair. He had watched the vid a dozen times, but it still confused him. However, he couldn't do anything until he arrived at Evensong. Until then, he would simply have to bide his time. Jason Wright had always felt an empathy for the outer platforms. There was something about the way they hung alone in space, claimed by neither planet nor star. They weren't lonely, they were... Solitary. Autonomous. Jason sat beside the shuttle's port window, looking at Evensong as it approached. The platform resembled others of its kind, a flat sheet of metal fifty miles long, with buildings sprouting from both its top and bottom. It wasn't a ship or even a space station. It was nothing more than a collection of random buildings surrounded by a bubble of air. Of all the outer platforms, Evensong was the most remote. It hung between the orbits of Saturn and Uranus, the farthest deep-space human outpost. In a way, it was like an old west border town, marking the edge of civilization. Except, in this case, no matter what humankind liked to think, civilization lay outside the border, not within it. As the shuttle approached, Jason could sense the city's separate sky-rises and towers, many of them linked by walkways. He sat with his eyes turned to the window, though the position was redundant. He had been legally blind since he turned sixteen. It had been years since he could even make out shadows or light. Fortunately, he had other methods of seeing. He could sense lights shining from windows and streets. To him, their white light was a quiet buzz in his mind. He could also sense the line of buildings rising in a way that was reminiscent of an old Earth city skyline. Of course, there wasn't really a sky or a horizon, just the blackness of space. Blackness. Voices laughed in the back of his mind. Memories. He pushed them away. The shuttle slid into Evensong's atmospheric envelope. The platform had no sphere or force field, like some of the older space stations employed. Element-specific gravity generators had eliminated the need for such things, and had opened space for mankind. ESG, along with fusion generators, meant that humankind could toss an inert piece of metal into space, then populate it with millions of individuals. Jason sat back as the shuttle made its final approach. He had a private cabin, of course. It was well-furnished and comfortable, a necessity for such a long trip. The room smelled faintly of his dinner— steak, 
and otherwise had a sterile, well-clean scent to it. Jason approved. If he had owned a home, he would have kept it in a similar way. I suppose it is time for the vacation to end, Jason thought, silently bidding farewell to his relaxed solitude. Jason reached up to tap the small control disc attached to the skin behind his right ear. A sound clicked in his ear, the acknowledgement that his call was being relayed across the void to Earth so far away. Faster than light communication, a gift given to Earth as a reward for mankind's most embarrassing political faux pas of all time. You called? A perky feminine voice sounded in his ear. Jason sighed. Lana? Yep. I don't suppose anyone else is there? Jason asked. Nope, just me. Aaron? Assigned to Rielli, Lana said. He's investigating CLA labs on Jupiter Platform 17. Doran? On maternity leave. You're stuck with me, old man. I'm not old, Jason said. The shuttle has arrived. I'm initiating a constant link. Affirmative. Jason felt the shuttle set down in the docks. Where's my hotel? It's fairly close to the shuttle docks, Lana replied. It's called the Regency Fourth. You're registered as a Mr. Elton Flippenday. Jason paused. Elton Flippenday, he asked flatly, feeling the docking clamps send a shudder through the ship. What happened to my standard alias? John Smith, Lana asked. That's far too boring, old man. It's not boring, Jason said. It's unassuming. Yes, well, I know rocks that are less unassuming than that name. It's boring. You operatives are supposed to lead lives of excitement and danger. John Smith doesn't fit. This is going to be a long assignment, Jason thought. A quiet sound buzzed in the room, an indication that docking had finished. Jason Rose fetched his single bag of luggage, slid on his sunglasses and left his quarters. He knew the glasses would look odd, but his sightless eyes tended to put people on edge, especially when they discovered that he was obviously able to see despite his unfocused pupils. So, how was the trip? Lana asked. Fine, Jason said tersely, walking down the shuttle's hallway and nodding toward the captain. The man ran a good crew. In Jason's opinion, any crew that left him alone was a good one. Come on, Lana prodded in his ear. It had to be more than just fine. What kind of food did they serve? Did you have any problems with the... She droned on, but Jason stopped paying attention. He was focused on something else, a slight warble in Lana's voice. It sounded for only a brief second, but Jason immediately knew what it meant. The line was being tapped. Lana had undoubtedly heard it as well. She was loquacious, but not incompetent. But she continued as if nothing had happened. She would wait for Jason's signal. "'How are the kids?' Jason asked. "'My nephews,' Lana replied, not breaking the rhythm of her conversation as she received his coded request. "'The older one's fine, but the younger one has the flu.' The younger one was sick. That meant the tap was on Jason's end, not hers. Interesting. Someone had managed to get close enough to scan his control disc without him noticing. Lana fell silent. She was preparing a tap block, but would only act if Jason ordered it. He didn't. Instead, he stepped out of the shuttle and walked down the short ramp to the arrival station. Spread before him sat a line of scanning arches, 
meant to search for weaponry. Jason strode through them without concern. There wasn't a scanner in human space that could discover his weapons. He nodded with a smile as he passed a guard. The man smelled faintly of tobacco and was wearing a blue uniform that registered as a pulsing rhythm in Jason's mind. The guard frowned as he saw the silver PC pin on Jason's lapel, then turned a suspicious eye on his scanners. Jason stepped aside as the other passengers formed a line at the registration counter, ostensibly searching for his ID. He watched them with his sense, however his useless eyes turned downward. Most of the people wore the soft rhythm of navy, the roar of white or the still silence of black. None of them stood out, but he memorised the patterns of their faces. The person who had tapped his line must have been on the shuttle. After they had passed, Jason pretended to find his ID, one of the old plastic ones, rather than a new holovid card. A tired security man, his breath smelling of coffee, accepted the ID and began processing Jason's papers. The guard was a young man and his skin was tinted blue after one of the newer fashion trends. The man worked slowly and Jason's eyes drifted to a holovid playing on the back counter. It displayed a news programme. Found murdered in an incineration building, the anchor said. Jason snapped upright. Jason, Lana's voice said urgently in his ear. I just picked something up on the news feeds. There's been a... I know, Jason said, accepting his ID back and dashing out of the customs station and onto the street. Captain Orson answered, Evensong PD, hustled through topside slums. It still surprised him that Evensong had slums. All of the platform's buildings were built on rich telanium, a super-light silvery metal that didn't corrode or fall apart. In fact, most of the buildings had been prefabricated with the platform and were an extension of its sheet-like hull. The buildings were spacious, well-constructed and sleek. And still there were slums. It didn't matter that Evensong's poor lived in homes that many wealthy earthsiders couldn't afford. By comparison, they were still poor. Somehow their dwellings reflected that. There was a sense of despair to the area. Shiny, modern buildings were hung with ragged drapes and drying cloth. Air cars were rare, pedestrians common. "'Over here, Captain,' one of the men said, monitoring toward a building. It was long and squat, though like all buildings on the platform, it had other structures built on top of it. The officer, a new kid named Ken Harris, led Orson inside, and Orson was immediately struck by a pungent, smoky scent. The building was a burning station, where organic materials were recycled. Officers moved about in the darkened room. Like most buildings on Evensong, this one was poorly lit. Evensong's distance from the sun kept it in a perpetual state of twilight, and the platform's inhabitants had grown accustomed to having less light. Many of them kept the lights dim even indoors. The tendency had bothered Orson at first, but he rarely noticed it any more. Several officers saluted, and Orson waved them down with a perfunctory gaze. "'What have we got here?' "'Come and look, sir,' Harry said, weaving through some equipment toward the back of the room. Orson followed. Eventually they stopped beside a massive cylindrical burner. Its metallic face was dark and flat. One of the bottom reservoir doors was open, revealing the dust below. Mixed with the dirt and ash was a large section of carapace, its shell stained black from the heat. Orson swore quietly, kneeling beside the carapace. 
He poked at the shell with a stirring rod. This is our missing ambassador? That is what we assume, sir, Harris said. Great, Olsen thought with a sigh. The Varvax had been asking about their ambassador since its disappearance two weeks before. What do we know? Olsen asked. Not much, Harris said. These burners are only emptied once a month. The carapace has been in there for some time. There's almost nothing left. Any longer, and we wouldn't have found it. That might have been preferable, Olsen thought. What did the Sensenet record? Nothing, Harris said. Does the media know about this? Olsen asked, hopefully. I'm afraid so, sir, Harris said. The worker who found the body leaked the information. Orson sighed. All right, then let's... He trailed off. A figure was silhouetted in the building's open door. A figure not wearing a police uniform. Orson swore quietly, standing. The officers outside were supposed to keep the press out. I'm sorry, Orson said, walking toward the intruder, but this area is restricted. You can't... The man ignored him. He was tall and thin with a triangular face and short-cropped black hair. He wore a simple black suit, a little outdated but otherwise indistinctive, and a pair of dark sunglasses. He brushed past Orson with an air of indifference. Orson reached out to grab the insolent stranger but froze. There was a gleaming pin on the man's lapel, a small silver bell. What? Orson thought with amazement. When did a PC operative get here? How did he know? The questions didn't really matter. Regardless of their answers, one thing was certain. Orson's jurisdiction had come to an end. The phone company had arrived. It had finally happened 140 years before, in the year 2071. Oddly enough, the ones who had made first contact had been an outdated, nearly bankrupt phone company. Northern Bell Incorporated had been on the losing side of technological progress. While its competitors had been researching and incorporating Holovid technology, Northern Bell had tried something a little more daring, cybernetic-based telepathic blinking. Saito, as it was dubbed, had turned out to be a failure. Holovid technology was not only cheaper and more stable, it also worked. Saito had not worked, at least not as Northern Bell had hoped. In the last days before its impending bankruptcy, the company had finally managed to get a few squeaks of sound through the system. Those squeaks, while unimpressive to their human monitors, were also inadvertently projected through space to a group of beings known as the Tenassi. The Tenassi reply had been the first interspecies contact Earth had ever known. Second contact had been made by the United Government's military when they accidentally shot down the Tenassi ambassadorial vessel. But that, of course, was an entirely different story. He's been missing for two weeks, Jason asked, kneeling beside the burned carapace. It was silent in his mind, a foreboding indication of its black colour. Yes, sir, the officer said. Yep, Lana said at almost the same time. Why wasn't I informed of this? Jason asked. The police officer looked confused for a moment before realising that Jason wasn't talking to him. Earlinks were a common, if confusing, part of modern life. "'I assumed you knew, old man,' Lana said. "'You know, Jason, for an all-knowing spy-type, you're remarkably uninformed.' Jason grunted, standing. 
She was right. He should have looked into local news stories during his trip. It was too late now. The officer regarded Jason with hard eyes. Jason could read the man's emotions easily. Not through the use of his cytosenses. It was a common misconception that psionics were telepathic. No, Jason could read the man's emotions because he was accustomed to dealing with local law enforcement. The officer would be annoyed at Jason for interfering with his investigation. But at the same time, the officer would be relieved. Local men always felt overwhelmed when it came to dealing with other species. Aliens were to be handled by the phone company. The PC had made first contact. The PC had negotiated Earth out of danger following the Tanasai incident. The PC had brought FTL communication to humankind. So the officer watched Jason, jealous but thankful. Jason could hear other officers muttering at the edges of the room, angry at his interference. Dirty PC. Why is he here? Why does he look at us like that? Can't you see? What's that in front of your face? Is it my fist? Can you see it if I hit you? Maybe that will... Jason... Lana's voice sounded in his ear. Jason snapped too, muscles twitching, memories fading. He still knelt beside the burner. The officer still stood staring at him. The room still smelled overpoweringly of smoke, and he could still hear the reporters arguing with officers outside. "'I'm all right,' Jason whispered. He stood, dusting off his suit, listening to the reporters. They, like the policemen, would probably assume that Jason had come to Evensong to investigate the ambassador's death. It didn't matter that Jason's shuttle had left for Evensong over a month before the murder. An alien had died, and a PC operative had arrived. That would be enough for them. "'I shouldn't have come to the scene,' he mumbled. "'What else would you have done?' Lana asked. "'This is our duty, after all.' "'Not mine,' Jason said. "'I'm here to retrieve a missing scientist, not investigate a murder.' Then, speaking louder, he continued... I'm certain the local law enforcement is competent. Let them investigate. The PC can handle diplomatic negotiations. The officer looked surprised, but apparently uncertain what else to do, he saluted Jason. Jason nodded, then turned to leave. Not that the diplomatic negotiations will be too hard, Lana noted. The Varfax are so insanely docile that they'll probably apologise for inconveniencing one of our murderers. They're all like that, Jason said, stepping out onto the building's front steps. That's the big problem, isn't it? There was a moment of shocked silence as the reporters realised who he was. They stood in a ring around several beleaguered police, and the commotion was attracting a crowd of curious onlookers. Then the reporters exploded with questions. Jason ignored them, pushing his way through the crowd. He had his head bowed, his hand raised to forestall questions. However, in his mind he was looking. He scanned the crowd, pushing through the humming and pulsing colours. He looked over each face, comparing them to the ones in his memory. A smile crept to his lips as he found what he was looking for. The media let him leave. They were used to the PC ignoring their questions. Behind him, Jason could hear their on-the-spot vidcasts. They had all the facts wrong, of course. There was fear in their voices a fear of what they didn't understand, a fear of the retribution that might come. In their world, retribution was assumed. In their world, you hurt that which was weaker than you. 
Jason continued to walk with his head bowed. Behind him, a man broke free from the group of onlookers and wandered in Jason's direction, obviously trying to look casual. "'I wish there were more flowers,' Jason said. A second later, a click sounded in his ear. Then Lana sighed. "'What took you so long?' she demanded. "'I've been waiting for you to do that ever since you got off the shuttle. "'I feel creepy knowing someone's hacking our line.' Jason continued to stroll forward. His shadow followed. The man moved with the skill of one who had been well-trained, but he made the mistakes of one who was inexperienced. There was no change to his step. He probably hadn't noticed the switchover. At that moment he would be listening to a fabricated conversation between Lana and Jason. For some reason, Jason suspected he didn't want to know what kind of silly things Lana's replicated version of his voice was saying. "'Is he buying it?' Lana asked. "'I think so,' Jason said, walking away from the slums. "'He's still following. "'Who do you think he's with?' "'I'm not sure yet.' Jason turned, taking the steps into an air train station. The man followed. "'If you caught him this quickly, he must not be very good.' "'He's young,' Jason said. "'He knows what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't know how to do it.' "'A reporter?' Lana guessed. "'No.' Jason said. He's too well equipped. Remember, he managed to hack into a secure FTL com. One of the corporations? Maybe, Jason said, strolling into an underground cafe. It smelt of dirt, mould and coffee. His follower waited for a few moments outside, then walked in and took a table a discreet distance from Jason. Jason ordered a cup of coffee. We haven't discussed how he managed to scan your disc. Lana nodded. You're losing your edge, old man. I'm not old, Jason mumbled as the waitress brought his coffee. It smelled of cream, though he had ordered it black. He turned his ineffectual eyes on a newspaper someone else had left on the table, but his mind studied his follower. The man was indeed young, in his early twenties. He wore softly humming greys and browns. So, Lana said, do you want to try and get me a visual so I can look him up? Jason paused. No, he finally said, taking a sip of his coffee. It did have far too much cream in it. Probably an attempt to obscure its poor flavour. Well, what are you going to do? Be patient. Colin Abrams sipped his coffee. It didn't have enough cream. He had to keep telling himself not to look at his target. Colin didn't actually need to watch the man to monitor the conversation. He just had to stay within range. What are you doing here, right? Colin wondered with frustration. How did you know the ambassador would be killed? What does all of this have to do with your plans? Colin shook his head. Jason Wright, head operative for Northern Bell Phone Company, one of the most enigmatic people in the solar system. What was he doing on Evensong? The United Intelligence Bureau knew a lot about the man, but for every known fact there seemed to be two more missing. Take, for instance, the Tanasai Agreement. Colin had read the document itself a hundred times, and had watched the Holovids' commentaries and old newscasts relating to the Tanasai incident over and over. The United Government's military had accidentally shot down a Tanasai diplomatic vessel, thereby initiating a rather embarrassing first contact. Earth had been thrown into a chaos of confusion and worry. Were they being invaded? 
Would they be invaded now that they had made such a horrible mistake? Then the PC had stepped in. Somehow, using means they had yet to explain, they had contacted the Tanasai. The PC had brought peace to Earth. But in exchange, the company had demanded a steep price. From that moment on, the PC had become completely autonomous, untaxable, unquestionable, and completely above the law. In addition, the PC had secured sole rights to the aliens' FTL communications technology. And with those two concessions, the PC had become the most powerful, most arrogant force in the system. Colm gripped his mug tightly, barely noticing as the waitress brought his sandwich. He was still listening to the conversation between Wright and his base support operative. They were discussing what colour roses they liked best. Colm had never trusted the PC, and he hated things he couldn't trust. The PC grew fat off its treaties. It held exclusive contracts with all twelve alien races humankind had met. The alien races all refused to deal with Earth unless they went through the PC first. The phone company kept humankind locked in space, refusing to share FTL travel technology. It claimed that the aliens had yet to give it to them. Colin suspected the truth. The aliens had FTL travel, that was certain. The PC was simply keeping it from humankind, and that infuriated Colin. He wanted to find... Colin froze. The conversation in his ear had stopped mid-sentence. For a panicked moment, Colm feared that Wright had slipped out of the restaurant and out of range. Colm's eyes darted across the room. He was relieved to find Wright sitting in his booth, sipping quietly at his coffee. It had simply been a lull in the conversation. "'What do you think he'll do when he realises his cover is blown?' the base support operative Lana said in Colm's ear. Colm paused. "'I don't know.' Jason Wright's voice was firm, arrogant. Colm could see Wright's lips moving as he spoke. I suspect he will be surprised. He's young. He assumes he's better than he really is. Wright looked up. His sun-glassed eyes looked directly at Colm's face. Horror rose in Colm's chest and emotion quickly followed by shame. He'd been discovered. Come here, boy, Wright ordered in Colm's ear. Colm shot a look at the door. He could probably get away. If you leave, Wright said, then you will never discover why I am on Evensong. His voice was sharp and businesslike. Colm regarded the man indecisively. What should he do? Why hadn't any of his classes covered situations like this one? When an agent was discovered, he was supposed to pull out. But what if his target seemed willing to talk to him? Slowly, Colm rose and crossed the cafe's dirty floor. Wright's sunglasses watched him quietly. Colm stood for a moment beside Wright's table, then sat stiffly. Don't reveal anything, Colm warned himself. Don't let him know that you're with the... You were young for a UIB agent, Wright said. Inwardly, Colm sighed. He already knows. What have I gotten myself and the Bureau into? I wonder... Wright said, taking a sip of his coffee. Is the Bureau growing more confident in its young agents, or am I simply slipping in priority? He doesn't know, Colm realised with surprise. He thinks I'm here officially. Neither, Colm said, thinking quickly. We weren't ready for you to leave. 
I was the only field agent who was unassigned at the time. It was simple, pure luck. Wright nodded to himself. He accepted it. I must say, Wright said, setting down his mug, I am growing tired of the UIB. Every time I think that you people are going to leave me alone, I find myself being followed again. If the PC weren't so untrustworthy, Cohn said, its operatives wouldn't have to worry about being followed. If the Bureau weren't so poor at investigation, Wright said, it would have realised by now that the PC is the only company that the Bureau can trust. Cohn flushed. Are you going to say something useful, or are you just going to insult me? A clever man would realise that my insults contain the most useful information you're likely to receive, Wright said. Cohn snorted, rising from the chair. Wright had just invited him over to gloat, and Cohn had ruined his own career for nothing. He had been so certain that he could tell Wright, that he could figure out what the man was doing, discover the truth behind the Tanasi agreement. You may accompany me, Wright said, finishing his coffee. Colin paused mid-step. What? Wright sat down his mug. You want to know what I'm doing? Well, you may come with me. Maybe this will finally alleviate the UIB's foolish suspicions. I'm tired of being followed. Jason? Lana said in Colin's ear. Are you certain? No. Wright said. I'm not. However, I don't have time to deal with the UIB right now. This is a simple mission. The boy may come with me if he wishes. Colin stood dumbfounded. He couldn't decide what to do. Could he really trust a PC operative? No, he couldn't. But what if he learned something important? I... Hush, Wright said suddenly, holding up a hand. Colin frowned. Wright wasn't looking at him, however. He was staring straight ahead, his face confused. Now what? Colin wondered. Something was wrong. Jason ran his mind around the room, trying to sense what was bothering him. The café had about a dozen other occupants, all eating quietly. Most of them were in workers' clothing, flannels and denim that pulsed in a regular symphony in Jason's mind. He studied their faces and recognised none of them. What was bothering him? A line of bullets blasted through the window just beside Jason. They came too fast for his body to react or dodge, moving with incredible speed of modern weaponry. As fast as the bullets were, however, Jason's mind was faster. He whipped out a dozen invisible mind blades that slashed through the air. The force of his attack slapped the bullets backward, as well as sliced each one in two. There was a series of audible clicks as the pieces bounced back off the window, then fell to the café floor. All was silent. The UIB kid plopped into his seat, his face horrified as he stared at the window and its holes. Jason, Lana said urgently. Jason, what happened? Jason sensed out of the window, but the sniper was already gone. I don't know. Someone shot at you? Lana asked with concern. Jason regarded the bullet holes. They ran in a small circle in the window just beside the UIB kid's head. No, he said. They tried to kill the kid. The café's patrons were running about in fear, some calling out, others hiding beneath benches. The UIB kid was looking down at himself with surprise, as if he couldn't believe that he was still alive. 
They all missed, the boy whispered with amazement. Jason frowned. Why would someone try to kill a UIB agent? Why not focus on Jason? The PC was a far more dangerous threat. How did you let him sneak up on you like that? Lana asked. I wasn't expecting to be shot at. This was supposed to be a simple assignment. Then, turning to the kid, he nodded. Let's go. The kid looked up with surprise. Someone tried to kill me. Why? I'm not certain, Jason said. He ran his sense over the room one last time, memorising faces. As he did so, he noticed something. While most of the people were hiding or quivering in fear, one didn't seem to be concerned at all. A solitary form sat quietly at the back of the café. He was a nondescript man with a long nose and a firm body. He watched Jason with interested eyes, eyes that seemed slightly unfocused, almost as if... Impossible, Jason thought. Then, without bothering to see if the UIB kid followed him, he left the café. You must take the apologies of us, Sun urged. The Varvak's foreign minister's words were delivered by a translation programme, of course. The Varvak's language consisted of clicks and snaps mitigated by hand gestures. The figure on the holovid screen was large and boxy, and its skin shone with quartz and granite. That was only the exoskeleton. The Varvaks were actually small creatures that floated in a nutrient bath sealed within their inorganic shells. Sun, Jason pointed out, sitting back in his chair, your people were the victims here. Your ambassador was murdered. Sun waved a claw-like hand, a symbol of denial. You must understand that he knew the risks of living in an undeveloped civilization. Creatures of lesser intelligence cannot be held responsible for their acts of barbarity. You have not yet learned a better way. Jason smiled to himself. Comments like that one earned the Varvaks and most other alien races humankind's disgust. It didn't matter that the comments were true. In fact, the truth of such statements only enraged humankind more. We will return what is left of the body as soon as possible, Minister Son, Jason promised. Thank you, Jason of the phone company. You must tell me, how go your efforts at civilization? Will your people soon raise themselves to primary intelligence? It will take some time yet, Minister Son, Jason said. You are an interesting people, Jason of the phone company, Sun said, his claws held before him in a gesture of supplication. You may speak on. You have such disparity among what you are, Sun said. Some of primary intelligence, some of tertiary, or even quaternary intelligence, such disparity. You must to tell me. Are your people still convinced of the power of technology? Jason shrugged an exaggerated shrug. The Varvaks liked to watch and interpret human gestures. Humankind believes in technology, Minister Son. It will be very difficult for them to accept another way. Of course, Jason of the phone company. We will speak to each other again. We will speak again, Jason said, shutting off the holovid. He sat for a moment, sensing the room around him. He couldn't just relax completely any more.
He missed that. If he let his concentration lapse, the darkness would come upon him. They certainly are confident, aren't they? Lana asked in his ear. They have reason to be, Jason replied. It has always happened as they expect. A race discovers FTL's cytonic transmission at the same time it achieves a peaceful civilization. If only they weren't so cursed ingenious, Lana said. A part of me wishes I had three Varfax diplomats, a card table, and a host of useless technologies I could cheat out of them. That's the problem, Jason said. There's a little of that in all of us. What if they're wrong, Jason? Lana asked. What if we do get FTL travel before we're civilised? Jason didn't reply. He didn't know the answer. I looked up the kid for you, Lana offered. Go on, Jason said, rising and gathering his things. The attack the day before still had him worried. Was it an attempt to scare Jason off? From what? The day you left, a young UIB agent named Colin Abrams disappeared from the Bureau's training facilities on Jupiter-14, Lana said. He stole some sophisticated monitoring equipment. The UIB put out several warrants for him, but they aren't looking this far. Apparently they didn't expect him to make it all the way to Evensong. It isn't exactly a prime vacation spot, Jason noted, strolling over to the window and trying to imagine what the city would look like to normal eyes. It would be dark, he decided. Most of it didn't vibrate very much to him. Dark and tall, like a city constructed entirely of alleyways. Lights were sparse and insufficient, and the air smelled musty. It always seemed to be a few degrees below standard temperature, too, as if the vacuum of space were closer, more ominous than it really was. So, Lana said, we've got a wanted felon. Can we turn him in? No. Jason said, turning from the window. He put on his suit coat and slid on his dark glasses. Come on, let's turn him in, Lana said. In fact, it was probably the UIB who tried to have him killed yesterday. They don't work that way, Jason said, walking to the door. Do you have my permit secured? Yes, Lana said. Good. Turn the kid back on and let's get going. The image was blurred and poorly exposed. Unfortunately, it was the best he had. Colin walked around the large, hollow image, studying it as he had hundreds of times before. The answer was before him. He could feel it. The image held a secret. Yet Colin, like thousands of others, was unable to determine just what that secret might be. The image had been taken by the only spy to infiltrate the PC's central headquarters. It was a picture of a simple white room with an apparatus lining the back wall. That apparatus, whatever it was, powered all of humankind's FDL communications. It was the greatest secret of the modern age. Humankind had been trying for nearly two centuries to break the PC's monopoly on FDL communication. Unfortunately, no amount of research had been able to duplicate the PC's strange technology. And until someone did... Humankind would be indebted to a tyrant. It has to be here, Colm thought, staring at the unyielding image. He walked around it to look at several angles. If only it weren't so blurry. He looked closely at the hollow image. A security guard sat against the right side of the room, staring in the photographer's direction. 
There seemed to be several cylindrical outcroppings on the far wall. Relays of some kind? One was larger than the others and dark in colour. Was it the answer? Colin sighed. Men far more technologically savvy than he had tried to dissect the image, but none had been able to draw any decisive conclusions. The picture was just too fuzzy to be of much use. He had spent the entire morning trying to decide why someone would try to kill him. He had only been able to come to one decision, that for some reason Wright had ordered him assassinated. The PC agent had been the one who had coerced Colne over to sit beside him, in the place where the assassin had shot. The PC was behind it somehow. Except the assassin missed, Colne thought. He must have done so on purpose. Wright wanted to scare me off. He acted like he didn't care if I followed him. Then he tried to frighten me away. Colne nodded. It made sense, in a twisted PC sort of way. And if Wright didn't want him along, then Colne had to make certain he stayed. Wake up, kid, Lana's voice crackled suddenly in his ear. I'm awake, Colne said, bristling at the reference to his age. Twenty-three was hardly young enough to earn him the title of kid. At least the other two had stopped feeding him dummy conversations. When they didn't want him to listen, they simply shut him out completely. The big guy's leaving, Lana said in her pert voice. Colne was beginning to wonder why Wright put up with her. He says you can go with him, but only if you can keep up. Colne cursed, throwing on his jacket. Oh, and Colne, Lana said, try not to steal anything from him. Jessen's kind of attached to his equipment. Colne flushed. How much did they know? He dashed out into the hallway just in time to see Wright's black-suited form turn a corner. Colin padded across the floor, catching up to the operative. Wright barely acknowledged him. They walked in silence to the end of the hallway, then took the private lift down to the lobby. The lush carpets and rich furnishings hinted that they were far indeed from the previous day's slums. So what is it? Colin asked as they stepped out into the silvery Telenium Street. The street, as always, was dimly lit, though hundreds of lights shone from windows and signs. Evensong was dark, but it did not sleep. What is what? Wright asked as an air cab, obviously chartered, pulled up in front of the hotel. What is your purpose here, Wright? Colin asked, climbing into the back of the car beside the operative. I assume you knew something about the ambassador's death. You assume wrong, Wright said, as the air cab began to move. The ambassador's murder was a coincidence. Colin raised an eyebrow in scepticism. Believe me or not. I don't really care. Then why are you here? Colin asked. Wright sighed. Tell him. It happened just under two months ago, kid, Lana said. A scientist named Denise Carlson disappeared from Evensong's PC research facility. Colin frowned at the comment, searching through his memory. He paid attention to anything the Bureau learned about the PC. He recalled something about the scientist's disappearance, but it hadn't seemed very important. But, Colin said, our report said she was nothing more than a lab assistant. The PC home office barely paid any mind to her disappearance. It said that she had been a victim of a common street mugging. Well, at least someone pays attention to current events, Lana said. Wright snorted. He might pay attention, 
but he should have realised that any story we downplay is far more important than it seems. Colm blushed. So you came to find us Denise Carlson? Wrong, Lila said. That's why he left, but that's not the goal anymore. While Jason was in transit, we located Miss Carlson. Just under two weeks ago, a woman fitting her description was picked up by the authorities. She was diagnosed with severe mental problems and was checked into a local treatment ward. So, Colm said. So I'm here to retrieve her, Wright said. Nothing more. We're going to bring her back to Jupiter 14 so that she can receive proper treatment. My role is that of a simple courier. Wright smiled slightly, turning his black glasses toward Colm. That is why I am willing to let you come with me. You sacrifice your career so you could watch me escort a mental patient. Jason strode into the hospital, the depressed Colm tagging along behind. The kid kept asking questions, convinced that Jason's actions had some greater purpose in the PC's master plans. Jason was beginning to regret bringing him along. The last thing he needed was another person jabbering at him. The nurse at the front desk looked up with surprise when he entered, her eyes flickering towards his silver lapel pin. Mr. Flippenday? she asked. He paused only briefly at the horrid name. I am. Show me to the patient. The nurse nodded, leaving the desk to another attendant and waving Jason to follow. She wore white, a roaring, blatant colour. To others, white was neutral, but to Jason it was by far the most garish choice. Better the subtle hum of grey. The walls were white as well, and the hallway smelled of cleaning fluids. Why do they do that? Jason wondered, shaking his head slightly. Do they think that it will make their patients feel at home? Lifeless sterility and monochrome white? Perhaps all these people need to regain their sanity's a little bit of colour. The nurse led them to a simple room with a locked door, ostensibly for the patient's safety. I'm glad you finally decided to come, the nurse said, a slightly chiding tone in her voice. We contacted the PC weeks ago, and the woman's just been waiting here all this time. With no relatives on the platform, one would think that you people... She trailed off as Jason turned toward her. After losing his eyesight, he had eventually learned that a look of discontent could be accomplished as much with one's bearing as with one's eyes. As he stared sightlessly at the nurse... Her resolve weakened, and the punitive tone left her voice. "'That is enough,' Jason said simply. "'Yes, sir,' the nurse mumbled, shooting him a spiteful look as she unlocked the door. Jason walked into the small, unadorned room. Denise sat beside a desk, the room's only furniture beside her bed and a dresser. She regarded Jason with wide eyes. She looked much as in his holovid. She was thin, her short dark hair in curls, and she wore a simple skirt and blouse. Jason had met her several times before. Denise had shown an affinity for Saito, and had been midway through her training. She had once been a straightforward and calculating woman. Now she looked like a young squirrel that hadn't yet learned to fear predators. They said you would come, she whispered, the words awkward in her mouth. Do you... Know who I am? Jason looked toward the nurse. She's still amnesiac, the nurse said, though we can't determine any physical reason for it. 
She also has some sort of muscular problem. She has trouble keeping her balance and controlling her limbs. Denise demonstrated such, rising slowly to her feet. She wobbled slightly as she walked forward, but she managed to remain upright. She's made amazing progress, the nurse said. She can walk now if she doesn't move too quickly. Denise, you're coming with me, Jason said. Abrams, help her walk. The kid looked up with surprise. Jason didn't give him time to complain. Instead, Jason turned and strolled from the room. Abrams cursed quietly, but did as he ordered, giving the confused Denise a helpful arm as they walked from the hospital. They were nearly out when Jason noticed something. He never would have seen it without his sense. The man hid behind a door, barely peeking out. The sense was more discerning than normal eyes, however, and Jason recognised the face even through the door's small slit. It was one of the men from the café. Not the strange man who had sat at the booth, but one of the ordinary workers. So they've been watching her, Jason thought as he left the building, the kid and Denise following. Did they expect her to reveal something? Or did they know that I would come for her? I do not know what this means, Denise said, staring at the menu with her wide eyes. She looked up, confused. You can't read? Jason asked. No, Denise replied. Here, let me help, Abrams offered, reading down the list of choices. Jason sat back, allowing himself a slight smile. The kid was showing an almost chivalrous devotion to the amnesiac woman. She was passably attractive, in a sickeningly innocent sort of way. Abrams was just betraying the inherent predisposition of a young human male. He had seen a woman in need and was trying to help her. Denise raised her hand awkwardly in an odd gesture as Colm read. I still do not know what it means. None of the words sound familiar, Jason asked, leaning forward with interest. No. But you can speak, Jason mused. What do you remember? Nothing, Denise said. I don't remember anything, Mr. Flippenday. Jason cringed. Call me Jason, he mumbled, as Abrams asked the girl what kind of food she liked. She, of course, didn't know. She should have remembered more. Most amnesiacs remembered something, if only fragments. What do you think? Jason whispered. It's odd, Lana said. She's changed, old man. Whatever they did to her, it was pretty thorough. Agreed. Abrams ordered for the girl and himself... Choosing, Jason noticed, two of the most expensive items on the menu. He knew that Jason would be paying. At least the kid had style. As he sat, Jason thought back to the strange man in the café. The man couldn't have accessed a Saito. In a hundred and fifty years, no one had discovered the ability besides the PC. But what if someone had? What if they had learned about Denise and had captured her to try and learn what she knew? What had they done to her to get at her knowledge? His pondering led him nowhere. Eventually the food came and Jason began to eat. He preferred simple meals with little mess, so he had ordered a tossed pasta dish with a very light sauce. He ate quietly, thoughtful as he watched a man a short distance away haggle over his bill with the waiter. He shouldn't have been worried about the ambassador's death. The police would probably find that the murder had been committed by some xenophobic activist group. 
they were prevalent. There were those who hated other species because of assumed superiority, those who hated them because they thought the aliens were too arrogant, and those who hated them simply because they were different. The student exchange program, where human children would be sent to other planets to learn of other species, had been defeated three times in the United Senate. The ambassador's death probably wasn't related to Denise. Jason should leave. There were too many things that demanded his attention for him to waste time chasing false leads. This trip had taken far too long already. Jason paused. Denise had turned and was staring at the man who was arguing about his bill. He raised his fist at the waiter, uttering a few epithets, then finally slapped down some money and stalked out of the building. Why is he like that? Denise asked. How can he be so angry? That's just the way people are sometimes, Colin said uncomfortably. How is your food? Denise turned her eyes down at the steak. She'd taken several awkward bites, though Colin had been forced to cut it for her. It's very... Very what? Jason prompted. I do not know, Denise confessed, blushing. It tastes too... strong. One of the flavours is very odd. Jason frowned. What flavour? I do not know. It was very strong in the hospital's food, too, though I didn't say anything. I didn't want to offend them. Describe the taste to me, Jason said. Something was tickling at the back of his mind, a connection he should have made. Leave her alone, old man, Abrams said. She's been through a lot. Jason raised his eyebrows at the use of old man. He heard Lana chuckling through the FTL link. Jason ignored Abrams, turning his head toward Denise. Describe the taste to me. I can't, Denise finally said. You must understand. I don't know what it is. Jason reached for the salt shaker, then sprinkled some salt on his hand. Taste this, he ordered. She did as asked, then nodded. That's it. I do not like it very much. Abrams rolled his eyes. You've figured out that she doesn't know the word for salty? So? She doesn't know what any of these foods are, or even what her name is. Jason sat back, ignoring the kid. Then he turned to his food and continued to eat in silence. I've arranged your return trip to Jupiter, Lana said. You'll be leaving on the courier ship Excel at 10.30pm local time. Jason nodded to himself. He stood on his balcony, leaning against the railing as he listened to Lana's voice in his ear. The ship is a good one and always punctual, as you like them, Lana said. Your accommodations are for two people. Jason didn't reply. He sensed Stevensong before him, feeling its massive metallic buildings and numerous walkways. Sometimes he tried to remember what it had been like to see. He tried to imagine colours as images rather than as cytonic vibrations, but he had trouble. It had been so long, and his eyes hadn't been very good in the first place. Even song was in motion around him. Air cars flew, people moved on the walkways, lights flickered on and off. It was beautiful in a way. Beautiful that humankind had expanded this far, that it had found a way to thrive even here. 
in the middle of space, where the sun was barely more than another star. You're not coming back yet, are you? Lana asked quietly. No. So you think the ambassador's death might be related? I'm not certain, Jason said. Maybe. Something is bothering me, Lana. About the murder? No. About our scientist. Something about Denise's... wrong. What? Jason paused. I'm not sure. She learned to walk and talk too quickly, for one thing. Lana didn't respond immediately. I'm not certain what to tell you, she finally said. Jason sighed, shaking his head. He didn't really understand what he meant either. He stood quietly for a moment, watching the flow of people on a walkway a short distance away. Something was wrong. He couldn't decide what it was, but he knew what he feared. For over a century, the PC had maintained a monopoly on Saito. He didn't expect psychic ability to remain confined to the PC. In fact, it was his ultimate goal that it not be. The very thing he was working toward was what he feared. Jason, Lana asked, have you ever worried that what we're doing is wrong? Every day. I mean, Lana continued, what if they're right? The Tanasai, the Varvax, and the rest, they're all much older than humankind is. They know more than we do. Maybe they're right. Maybe humankind will become civilised before it obtains FTL travel. Maybe by holding Saito back from them, we're keeping ourselves from progressing as we should. Jason stood quietly beside the balcony, listening to the sound of children running on the walkway below. Children. Laughing. Lana, he said. Do you know how the Interspecies Monitoring Coalition rates a race's intelligence class? No. They look at the race's children, Jason said quietly. The older ones. Children who have lived just long enough to begin imitating the society they see around them. Children who have lost the innocence of youth, but haven't yet replaced it with the tact and mores of adulthood. In those children you can see what a species is really like. From them, the Varvax determine whether a species is civilised or barbaric. And we failed that test, Lana said. Miserably. That's all right, Lana said. Every race fails it during the early part of their growth. We'll get there eventually. The Tanasai had barely begun using steam power when they made their first FTL jump, Jason said. The Varvax weren't far behind them. They still didn't have computers. Both species travelled to other planets before they learned to send a shuttle into space. Lana fell quiet. We've been in space for nearly three centuries now, Jason continued. The Varvax say that technology isn't the way. They claim that technological development has boundaries, but that a sentient mind is limitless. But... Still, I worry. I worry that humankind will find a way somehow. We always have before. And so you play watchdog, Lana said. Jason stood for a moment. The few so cleansed do these abodes repair, he finally said in a quiet voice, and breathe in ample fields the soft Elysian air. Then are they happy 
when, by length of time, the scurf is worn away of each committed crime. No speck is left of their habitual stains, but the pure ether of the soul remains. Homer? Lana asked. Virgil. Above, beyond the buildings, beyond the air, Jason could sense the specks of starlight in the sky. Space is Elysium, Lana. The place where heroes go when they die. The Varvax and the others, they've fought and bled just like we have. They finally overcame all of that. They paid their price and have earned their peace. I want to make certain their paradise remains such. By playing God? Jason fell silent. He didn't know how to reply, so he didn't. He simply stood, sensing the paradise above and even song below. Colin rifled through the in-room bar, searching for something to drink. He wasn't normally prone to drinking, but normally he wasn't facing the loss of his job and probable imprisonment. Eventually he poured himself a small glass of scotch and made his way out onto the balcony. He paused halfway out the door. Jason Wright stood leaning on his own balcony a short distance away. The man didn't look over, but Colin still felt as if he were being watched. Don't let him intimidate you, Colm told himself. He turned away from Wright indifferently and leaned against his own balcony railing. Coming after Wright had seemed like such a good idea at first. Colm had been frustrated at the Bureau's lack of information. They knew the PC was hiding technology from them, but they had no clue what it was. They knew Wright had something integral to do with the PC's operations, but they weren't sure why. They wanted to keep trailing him, but they'd made too many promises. The Bureau had been ready to just leave right alone. Colm sighed, taking a sip of his drink. He'd picked the wrong mission. Wright planned to leave within the day, taking the unfortunate scientist with him. And then Colm would be left by himself, a fugitive and a fool. That kid is a fool, Lana said. I know, Jason mumbled, but at least he has passion and courage. Not courage, brashness. Call it what you will, Jason said, sensing the young UIB agent standing a short distance away. What's more, Lana continued, he may have passion, but that passion is hatred of you. I've been doing some searching. It appears that you were the focus of several of his research projects back when he was an undergraduate. None of his conclusions were flattering, old man. You should read some of these things. Lana continued to speak, but Jason's mind drifted. His thoughts kept coming back to Denise. Who had taken her, and what had they done? She doesn't understand violence, Jason thought. She didn't understand violence, and she hadn't ever tasted salt. She spoke oddly, in a way that was almost familiar. She couldn't walk or use her muscles. It was almost... Jason took in a sharp, surprised breath. Almost as if she's accustomed to another body. What? Lana demanded. Denise Carlson is dead, he said. What? What happened to her? Jason was silent for a moment. Jason, what happened? Jason ignored her, turning and walking back into his room. He strode out into the hallway, then made his way to the room beside his own. Not Colne's, but on the other side. 
He threw open the door, not bothering to knock. Denise sat up with surprise, but relaxed when she realised who he was. Jason strolled past her without saying a word, walking to her room's control panel. He entered a few commands, and the light in the room grew far brighter, the bulbs turning slightly red in colour. How is that? he asked, turning to her. Denise regarded him with confusion. It's nice. It feels right for some reason. Jason nodded once. In his mind, the light was a virtual roar. Please, Denise said, holding her hands forward. Tell to me what you are doing. Hands forward in the Varvax gesture of supplication. He should have seen it sooner. Jason, you're freaking me out, Lana said in his ear. This isn't Denise Carlson, Jason said quietly. What? Who is it? Its name is Vaughn. Jason explained. Suddenly, Colm burst his way into the room. He immediately shielded his eyes from the light. Light that imitated a harsh, hot sun. One that required a strong crystalline carapace to provide protection. "'What are you doing, you maniac?' Colm said, pushing past Jason and altering the controls to the room. Then he turned to Denise. "'Are you all right?' "'I,' Denise said. "'Yes. Why would I not?' B. Colm turned harsh eyes toward Jason. Then he paused, frowning. What? Jason asked. Why are you looking at me like that, right? Colm demanded. Like what? Colm shivered. Your eyes. It's like you're looking past me. Like... Jason reached unconsciously for his face, feeling for sunglasses that weren't there. He had forgotten he wasn't wearing them. He turned from the room in shame, rushing out into the hallway. I mustn't let him see. Mustn't let him know. He'll mock me. He'll laugh. Colin stayed behind, watching with confusion as he knelt beside the creature that had the body of a woman and the mind of an alien. It's not possible, Lana said. They said that about psionics years ago, Jason said, striding down a walkway outside the hotel. But it's just so... So what? Lana sighed in frustration. All right, let's assume you're correct. Who would do such a thing? Why switch someone's mind for an alien's? What good would it do them? The Varvax are the most developed cytonics in the galaxy, Jason said, speaking quietly as he passed people on Evensong's dark streets. So? So, Jason said, what could you learn if you could spend a few years in a Varvax's head? What if you could get into a Varvax's body somehow and infiltrate their society? Someone tried to get hold of a Varvax host, but something went wrong. The body they stole was killed, or perhaps the transfer went awry. They disposed of the Varvax body afterwards and left Denise wandering the streets. Why Denise? Jason paused. I don't know. Maybe she was one of them. A spy of some sort. When a better opportunity came along, she took it. That's weak reasoning, old man. I know, Jason admitted, but I can't think of anything else right now. All I know is that the woman back in my rooms is not human. She acts like a Varvax, thinks like a Varvax, and gestures like a Varvax. She speaks English, Lana pointed out. Many Varvax study English, Jason said. 
or at least understand it. They find spoken languages interesting. Besides, maybe her body retained a residual understanding of speech and motion. Maybe, Lana said, sounding unconvinced. Where are you going? You'll see. Jason continued on his way for a short distance until he came. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...into the mental hospital. He strode in, and the same nurse sat behind the desk. She raised an eyebrow at him, confused and a little disapproving. Jason ignored her, striding into the facility itself. Sir? she called. You can't go in there. Sir, you don't have... Her voice trailed off, but soon she began calling for security. The nurse, Lana said, listening. You're back at the hospital? So you finally admitted that you're insane and decided to commit yourself. Orderlies, nurses and even some patients began to look into the hallway. He'd better be here, Jason thought. Just after the thought occurred to him, he sensed a familiar face peeking out of one of the rooms. Alert the Evensong Police Department, Lana, Jason said. They're about to get a report of a madman attacking one of the orderlies in this hospital. Please tell them to ignore it. Jason, you are a very strange man. Jason smiled, then spun and burst into the room. Several orderlies jumped back in surprise at Jason's entrance. The buzzing white room was some kind of employee lounge. The orderly, the one Jason had seen at the cafe, immediately turned to run. Jason jumped forward and snatched the man with one hand, then spun him around. The man struggled, but a knee to the groin stopped that. Jason pulled off his glasses, then grabbed the man's head with both hands and turned it toward him. "'Who sent you?' Jason asked, staring at the man with his sightless eyes. The man stared back defiantly. "'Ah, I see,' Jason said, holding the man's head in both of his hands. "'Yes.' I can read your thoughts easily. Very interesting. Ah, and yes. So they switched minds, did they? I didn't know that was possible. Thank you. You've been very informative. 
Jason released the surprised man's head. Lana snorted in his ear. Jason, unless you've been hiding some strange powers for a very long time, that was the biggest lot of lies I've ever heard. Yes, Jason said, replacing his glasses and striding out of the room. But they don't know that. What's the point? Lana asked. Be patient, Jason chided, holding up his hands as security men entered the hallway. I was just leaving, he said, then pushed past them and left the hospital. Back at the hotel, Jason gathered Denise and Colne in his room. One regarded him with customary wide-eyed confusion, the other with equally customary hostility. Jason removed his pin and handed it to Colne. There is a ship chartered for Jupiter 14, Jason said. Be on it when it leaves, and take Denise with you. Go to the PC office and they will protect you from the Bureau. What about you, right? Colne asked suspiciously. If I'm right, I shall be going somewhere else in a bit. You should get moving. The ship leaves in less than an hour. Colne frowned. Jason could sense the apprehension in his face. He didn't want to accept the PC's help, but he also didn't want to face the Bureau's justice. Hopefully he would see to Denise's safety. After a short internal debate, Colne nodded and stood. I'll do it right. But first, answer one question for me. What? Do you have what everyone says you do? Jason frowned. Have what? FTL engines, Colne said. Does the PC have the technology to create them or not? Have you been withholding the secret of FTL travel from the rest of humankind? Jason paused. You're asking the wrong question, he finally said. Colne's expression darkened. I knew you wouldn't answer, he said, turning towards Denise's chair. Come on, Denise. She didn't move. She slumped in her chair, eyes closed. Denise, Colne said urgently, kneeling beside her. She appeared to be breathing, but... Jason began to feel light-headed, and he noticed a faint scent in the air. He cursed quietly, turning to dash across the room. He stumbled halfway to the door, losing his balance. He barely even felt himself hit the ground. They work fast. Must have already been prepared to gas us. Jason awoke to blackness. Pure, horrifying blackness. There was no sight, no sense, no feelings at all. The darkness had returned. Jason began to shake. No, it can't be. Where's my sense? He curled up, barely feeling the cold metallic floor beneath him. The blackness swallowed him. It was more than just darkness. It was nothingness. A lack of sensation. It was the one true terror in Jason's life. And it had returned. He whimpered despite himself, memories flooding in. It had started with his night vision, as visual diseases often did. He remembered the nights spent in bed as a child, the darkness seeming to grow more and more oppressive. And then it had started to come during the day, first his peripheral vision. It had been like the darkness was following him, enveloping him. Each morning when he awoke, it had seemed that the darkness was closer, it had crouched like a beast in the corner of his vision. Terror. The doctors had been able to do nothing. 
Jason had been forced to try and live his life as normal, the darkness seeming to grow closer every moment. He had lived in perpetual fear of what must come. And then there had been the children, the other children who hadn't understood. He had tried to go on as usual, tried to live his life as if nothing were wrong. He should have admitted it to them. As it was, they saw only a stumbling fool. They had laughed. Oh, how they had laughed. Jason screamed as if yelling could push back the darkness. Where was his sense? What was wrong? He flailed in the darkness, his fingers brushing a wall. He pulled back into a corner, frightened and confused. How did you do it? A voice asked from above. Jason looked up but didn't see or sense anything. Tell me, Mr. Wright, the voice demanded. Can you read minds? This is impossible off-site toe. Even the Varvax cannot penetrate an individual's thoughts. How did you do it? Jason didn't respond. The darkness, the blackness. I did this on purpose, a piece of Jason's mind thought. I baited them. I wanted to get their attention so they would bring me to them. They did. This is what I wanted. But the darkness. How? Jason croaked. How have you taken it away? Answer my questions, Mr. Wright, the voice said, and I will return your sense. How did you read that man's mind? Jason shuddered, pulling back against the cold telenium. The man's voice was harsh and guttural. He spoke oddly, with an accent of some sort, but not one that Jason recognised. It's not permanent, Jason told himself. The darkness will go away, just like it did when you developed Saito. I am... Not a patient man, Mr. Wright, the voice warned. Speak, and I will let your companions live. Colm, Denise, they were in the room with me. Jason didn't answer. He sat breathing deeply, struggling to remain sane. Ever since he had developed Saito, he had never been in darkness. His sense worked even when there was no light. Lana, Jason whispered feeling the darkness advance on him. Lana! The link to your home base has been cut. Mr. Wright, the voice said. Jason whimpered. The darkness seemed to be growing closer, closer to devouring his mind. As you wish, Mr. Wright, the voice said. I will give you three minutes. If you don't have an answer for me by then... The woman dies. A click, then silence. It seemed worse without the voice. Suddenly Jason wished he had kept the man talking. He wished he had told the voice the truth, that he couldn't read minds. Anything to keep someone else there. Now he had no one. I can't do this, Jason thought. Anything but this. I lived this horror once, I can't do it again. He tried to push out with mind blades, but nothing happened. Be calm, Jason. Control yourself. The Vavak said something about this. 
Son had said it once. He had been reserved and uncomfortable. Odd for a Varvax. Jason had asked if there was a way to suppress cytonic ability. Son had eventually admitted there was, but had told Jason he wouldn't need it. Not yet. The darkness. No. Stay focused. You don't have time for fear. There was probably a technological aspect to the suppressant device. Many cytonic abilities had mechanical halves, like the FTL com feed, which wouldn't work without physical receivers. The cytonic behind his imprisonment would be feeding part of his mental energy into a physical device, one that used electricity to amplify the effect. But because of that augmentation, Jason would never be able to break free. He would be trapped forever in the blackness. Not forever. Just another few minutes until they kill me. That would almost be preferable. An image came to him. An image of humankind escaping into space. An image of human merchants trading and cheating. Of human tyrants capturing the technologically inferior Varvax to Nasai and Homar. Images of wars, of fighting, of a paradise destroyed. I can't let that happen. But what could he do? He felt along the wall, stumbling to his feet and feeling his way around the room. It was small, perhaps two metres square. He could barely feel the seal of the door. There wasn't a handle on his side. There's not enough time, Jason thought with desperation. I can't escape. I can't contact Lana. He couldn't contact Lana, but... He reached up to his ear, tapping at the control disc. They had broken his link to the home base, but perhaps they hadn't thought of stowaways. You won't get away with this, Colm screamed to the empty room. I am a UIB agent. There are serious repercussions for the imprisonment of a law enforcement officer. There was no answer. Colm sighed, his rage weakening before sheer boredom. He had awakened in this room which appeared to be some sort of storage closet with a headache. He hadn't heard a thing outside the door since that time. Denise was there too, sitting quietly on a box. What is right planning? Colm thought. He has us captured, but, but why? It had to have something to do with the PC master plan, whatever that was. Suddenly a sound crackled in his ear. Colm, the voice croaked sickly, like whispers from the lips of a dead man. Right? Colm asked. Why did you imprison me? Hush, Colm, the voice whispered. We are both imprisoned. We are going to die unless you can do something. Something? Colm asked suspiciously. What? You need to knock out the power. Blow a fuse. Overload a circuit. Do something. Colm frowned. What good will that do? They have backups. Just do it. The link crackled off. Colm swore quietly. What was Wright planning this time? Dead he trust the man. Dead he do otherwise. Denise watched with confusion as Colm searched through the small room, pushing aside boxes and carts. Eventually he found a power jack on the wall. He stood for a moment regarding it. Finally he sighed and loosed the piece of steel from a nearby box's constraint. Why not? 
It's not like I can get into more trouble than I'm already in. Jason couldn't escape the darkness. He couldn't shut his eyes against it, he couldn't run away from it, and he couldn't ignore it. He could only huddle against the wall, feeling his resolve and his sanity grow weaker by the second. He heard, but he didn't understand, the voice when it returned. His captors had made a grave mistake. They could make all the demands they wanted, but he was in no condition to respond to them. They could kill him. It wouldn't matter. The voice screamed at him. Jason felt his sanity slipping. He couldn't struggle against it. He didn't want to struggle against it. Struggling would be far too difficult. Blissful unconsciousness was the only answer. A silencing of thought and perception. At that moment his sense returned. It was only a blip, a fractional waver in the power level. But it was enough. Sense flooded into Jason like drugs into an addict's veins. It immediately began to fade, the suppressor coming back online. Jason blasted out a thousand mind blades at once, shredding the walls around him. He shattered the telanium into chunks, the chunks to chips and the chips to dust. The walls dissolved like tissue paper before a nuclear blast, spraying grains of metal away from him. He screamed as he let out the surge of power a bestial yell to push back the darkness. The suppressor immediately fell dead, its mechanisms destroyed by the blast. Jason lay huddled, his suit stained with dirt and sweat, on a bright telanium floor. He reveled in his return sense for a wonderful, silent moment. However, with sense came sanity. The two were inseparable to him. There is another cytonic here, and he's not going to be pleased that I've escaped. So... Taking a deep breath, Jason forced himself to stand. Colin sat stunned. He held a piece of rubber in his hand, the very one he had used to grip the metal as he'd rammed it into the power jack. He had expected a slight reaction. He hadn't expected the room next to his own to explode. Colin blinked, dusting the silvery telanium flakes off his clothes. What? he thought with amazement, rubbing some of the telanium grains between his fingers. What could have done this? Modern weaponry had difficulty even scarring telanium. He looked up and saw Jason Wright standing in the direct centre of the explosion. The operative suit was torn. Cohn let the telanium dust trickle from his stunned fingers as he saw Wright's eyes. Like before, they were unfocused, even unresponsive. They stared dully forward, motionless like the eyes of... a blind man. What are you? Colm whispered. Wright ignored the question. Take the girl and go, he said, his voice calm but ominous. This area is about to become very dangerous. Colm nodded, reaching for the frightened Denise's hand. At that moment a new voice spoke, one Colm didn't recognise. Oh, come now, Mr. Wright, the voice said. We must stoop to such assumptions. Are we not... civilised? Wright didn't turn toward the source of the sound, a speaker on the wall. Show yourself. There was silence. The sound of footsteps. Colm pushed Denise behind him, turning wary eyes on the hallway outside their rooms. The hallway that was now exposed thanks to the strange explosion. A figure appeared in the hallway. 
He was nondescript save for a long nose and a thin body. He wore a sharp navy suit and he was smiling as he strolled forward, scuffing the layer of telanium dust. Tell me who you are, Wright said, turning to face the man with his unfocused eyes. Come, Jason, the man said. Don't you recognize me? No. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, the man said, continuing to stroll around the room. It has been several years, and I really wasn't all that important. Just one of your many recruits. My name was Edmund. The room fell silent. Why did you try to kill Cone? Wright finally asked. Edmund smiled. Even for a PC agent, you're an extremely secretive man, Jason. You've been hiding things from the Varvax. If they knew that you could create mind breaks, they'd certainly be tempted to elevate humankind's intelligence designation. Wright frowned. It was a test. You wanted to see if I could stop the bullets. And I was not disappointed, Edmund said, stopping just in front of White. Mind blades are very advanced, Jason. Another few decades of study, and you might get FTL. I'm impressed. The two men stood facing each other, yet neither one's eyes focused on his opponent. They remained like that for a tense few moments, and Cone frowned. He felt like something important was on the verge of happening, but it never occurred. What is going on? Jason fought for his life. Hundreds of mind blades whipped toward him, invisible blasts of pure thought. It was all he could do to keep them from shredding his flesh. He fought back, sending his own mind blades to block those of his opponent, an opponent he still didn't understand. He vaguely remembered Edmund, though he hadn't known his face well enough to recognize him in the cafe. Edmund had been a man with some cytonic potential. He had run away from the PC after just a few months of training. That had only been two years ago. How had he learned so much in such little time? The barrage of mind blades slackened, and Edmund stepped back. He was still smiling, but there was reservation in his eyes. He hadn't expected Jason to be as good as he was. Jason breathed deeply. Colne was watching from a short distance away, his face confused. He hadn't been able to see the insane battle Jason had just fought. "'I'm impressed again, Jason,' Edmund said. Jason felt sweat trickle down his cheek. I wouldn't have expected you to know how to block mine blades, Edmund continued. Few of us have practiced that. Jason stood stiffly. I've been expecting this for some time, he whispered. I knew I couldn't keep it away from people like you. I knew that some day I would have to fight. You prepared well? The mine blades struck again. Jason grunted, whipping out with his own blades. There was a faint ripple to his sense when a mind blade was about to appear, and he sliced at that area with a blade of his own. The blasts cancelled each other out, wavering in his sense like two curves of light. He blocked hundreds of them, 
the air around him shining like he was in the middle of an explosion. I can't keep this up long. Eventually a mind blade would break through. Jason had only one card to play. He would have to make it count. Jason continued to fight, waiting for the right time. Edmund was better than Jason was. It shouldn't have been possible. Jason had been practising Saito longer than any other man. How could someone have overtaken him so quickly? Jason had to find out, otherwise all he had worked for would be lost. The attack retreated again. Edmund was perspiring now. At least it was difficult for him. You learn from the Varvax well, Jason said, gambling. Edmund looked up with surprise, then he laughed. So you can't read minds after all, he said with a smile. That was quite the bluff. I was wrong, Jason thought. But how then? Goodbye, Jason Wright. Jason felt the air waver around him. More mind blades than he could count began to form. It was like he was being circled in a dome of pure energy. He couldn't block them all. He would die. Now. Jason focused on himself. He didn't raise any mind blades. Instead, he sensed inward. He felt his own vibration in his sense, a cool, black-clothed creature, so different from the boy he had once been. The boy had been stupefied, made immobile by his horror. Jason was no longer that boy. With a scream he felt the mind blades descend around him, and he threw himself willingly into the darkness. All was still. The blackness enveloped him, the non-existence that had threatened him since childhood. Except this time he had come to it by choice. He suffocated for an eternal moment in its embrace. Then he reappeared. As he re-entered normal space, he pushed the air away, lest its molecules get trapped within his appearing body. In a similar manner, he pushed Edmund's flesh away from his hand. The world shook and Jason was back. He stood with his arm extended directly in front of Edmund. Jason's wrist ended abruptly where it met Edmund's flesh. His hand had materialised inside of the man's chest. Edmund's heart gripped in Jason's fist, thumped once. Edmund's eyes stared ahead in shock. Behind, the place where Jason had been a moment earlier exploded with mind blades. Jason squeezed once, and Edmund cried out in pain. The heart stopped beating. Edmund slid to his knees, and Jason pushed his hand slightly outside the space and withdrew it. Edmund fell backwards, staring with surprised, agonised eyes. He didn't fall unconscious as he died. He was far too powerful a cytonic for that. Instead, he just whispered, FTL transmission, Jason. You surprised me again. We had no idea. Jason knelt beside the man. I've had it for some time. Tell me. Tell me how you did it. Where did you learn such powers? The man laughed a pained, hacking laugh. I've studied it all my life, Jason. How? 
Jason demanded. Somehow, Edmund met Jason's eyes. Ah, you're such an idealist, Jason, of the phone company. Sometime, you must ask yourself this. Why would a race such as the Varvax need to learn an ability such as cytonic suppression? Jason paused, his mind growing numb. He knew only one answer, one he had barely dared consider. To keep prisoners. Prisoners, Edmund coughed. Original thinkers, dissenters, anyone who doesn't agree with them. You lie, Edmund laughed, his back arching in pain. And you will be our escape, he said, his voice growing loud until he was practically screaming. They've... Had their paradise long enough? You nearly went mad after spending just a few minutes without your sense. Imagine living your life in such a box. You see only the peace. You see only the perfect society. You don't see the Price. Edmund's final breath hissed out and his body fell limp. You lie, Jason whispered. They are a peaceful people. We are the monsters, not them. He sat for a moment regarding the fallen body. Colin still stood a short distance away, looking amazed and confused. Come here, Jason said quietly. Bring the girl. Colin obeyed without a word. Jason put a hand on each of them. Then he entered the darkness once again. Colin recognised the room immediately. He blinked once, trying to forget about the awful sense of emptiness he had just experienced. He was in a white curved room, the operations centre of PC headquarters. The room pictured in his fuzzy holovid. Colne had studied its image hundreds of times, and now he was actually there. Except PC Central Operations was on Earth, months away from Evensong. Colne breathed in surprise. Wright stood at a short distance, his suit tattered, blood seeping down his arms. You do have FDL travel, Colne accused. Yes. Then I was right, Colne said. You've been keeping FTL travel from humankind. Yes. Why? Colm demanded. What are you trying to protect us from? I wasn't trying to protect us, Wright said, walking over to the side of the room. He approached the wall, the one that was supposed to house the FTL communication machinery, and pulled a lever. A small cup popped out at the bottom, followed by a stream of steaming coffee. I was trying to protect them and prepare us. Prepare us? Colin asked. The exchange programs, Wright said. 
the outreach programs, even the skin colour fat. Anything to make us more open-minded. Of course, it doesn't really matter now, does it? Colne frowned, then eyed the coffee machine. So it's not the FTL comm unit? Wright shook his head, then pointed to the side. A man, the man Cole had mistaken for a security guard in the holovid, sat quietly in a chair a short distance away. The man had his eyes closed. His mind, Wright said. It powers all of the FDL calls. But, Cole said, there are millions of them. All you need is one mind to provide the FTL capability, Chesson explained. Computers can do the actual routing. Colm hissed quietly in surprise. Technology is limited, Jason said. Only the mind is infinite. Further questions were forestalled as the door to the room slammed open and a red-haired woman burst into the room. She immediately ran forward and grabbed Wright in a powerful embrace. What happened? she demanded, and Colm instantly recognised Lana's voice. Colm, Wright mumbled, meet Lana Wright. My wife. What? Your wife? Unfortunately, Wright said. There was a fondness in his voice. But, Colm objected, the Bureau has bugged your communications dozens of times. You always complain when she's assigned to you. Yes, and he does the assigning, Lana said, checking the small wounds on Wright's arms. He always says that the less the Bureau knows about his personal life, the better. Besides, he can't help teasing me. She looked up at Wright. All right, sit down and tell me what's going on. The medic is on his way. Wright sighed, taking another sip of his drink. I might have been wrong, Lana. About what? About everything, he said, his voice haunted. Jason sat in his quarters, letting the medic bandage his arms. Lana stood dissatisfied a short distance away. She was the terror of PC Central Operations. Few men had the courage, or the stupidity, to incur her wrath. All right, old man, she said. What happened? Jason shook his head. Before he could reply, his holovid beeped. Jason punched the button, and son's chitinous face appeared. You have some explaining to do, son, Jason said. The Varvax put forward his hand in supplication. I am at your disposal, Jason, of the phone company. Jason pushed a button, showing Sun an image of Denise being questioned by PC operatives. Tell me it's not true, Sun, Jason pled quietly. Tell me you don't lock your discontents away. Varvax discontents? Lana asked with surprise. Sun raised his hands, a sign of apology. I said that you would discover the reason for cytonic suppression eventually, Jason of the phone company. Jason bowed his head. No, it can't be. It is the only way, Sun said. The way to have peace. Peace for those who agree with you, Jason spat. It is the only way. And the others, Jason demanded. The Tenesai, the Hello, 
the same, Sun said. They have discovered the way, as you will eventually. The way to prime intelligence. I must apologize for the inconvenience we have given to you. Jason sat stunned. He was wrong. All these years, over a century of work, and he was wrong. They had deceived him. Suddenly he felt sick. Sick and angry. They're going to come for you, son, Jason said, nodding thankfully to the medic as he finished the bandaging. The man was trustworthy. One of the first Cytonics Jason had recruited over a hundred years before. Excuse me, Jason of the phone company? Zon asked after a short pause. His hands were pulled back in the Varvak sign of confusion. The medic left and Lana sat down beside Jason. She watched Son with calculating eyes. She had never liked the Varvaks. She said she didn't like people who could so easily falsify their body language. The ambassador, the one who died, Jason said. He was a discontent. I have him now. I thought humans were trying to infiltrate Varvak society. I didn't realise that it was the other way around. Your dissidents are escaping and they're hiding among us. They tried to get hold of human technology. We're still uncivilised, son. We have some war machines that could blast down your ships without even pausing. Son maintained his sign of confusion, then augmented it with one of worry. Few people know that the Tanasai ambassadorial vessel that had been shot down over Earth had been one of the most advanced, most powerful ships in the galaxy. A single human missile had destroyed it. The other species had far inferior technology. This is disturbing, Son admitted. I know, Jason said. Then he reached over and cut the connection. Son's face fuzzed and disappeared. Jason leaned back with a sigh, sensing Lana beside him. He'd known it was coming. He'd feared that he couldn't keep humankind out of space. He just hadn't expected heaven to fail him. I'm sorry, Lana whispered. Jason shook his head. You always warned me that I was too idealistic. I wanted to believe you anyway, Lana said. She slowly trailed her hand along his cheek. Do you think the one who attacked you was the only one? Not a chance, Jason said. He was too confident. Then... Jason took a deep breath. Prepare a press release, Lana. Tell them that the phone company has finally developed faster than light travel and that we will release it to the public as soon as the United Governments approve our patent. Lana nodded. Perhaps we can salvage something from paradise, Jason whispered. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brandon's. Brandon, thank you so much for that. What a story. Excellent. And Nick, <laughs> I got a laugh, but you know what I mean? It's just like head and shoulders there. That's a fantastic, fantastic narration. Thank you guys so much. So next up is our very own Mr. JJ Campanella. 
with Science News. Jim, sir. Greetings and stupendous expositions, my litotically mutologist listeners, and welcome to this May 2014 Science News Update. I'm your host for this pretty okay science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Before I get to the first story of the night, I just wanted to thank listeners for emailing me science questions. I really do appreciate the thought. It's very kind of you to believe I can answer some of the questions that you throw at me. My two latest emails from listeners left me a bit puzzled, however. The first was a note from Jenna Underwood. Jenna, frankly, I don't know if you asked me this as a joke or you were serious, but your question was, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Jenna, if you were aiming at a jape of some kind, I'm not entirely sure what the punchline's supposed to be. Or perhaps you were trying to confuse me with what looks like a silly question on the surface. However, if you were serious, then I actually do have an answer for you. Given the hypothesis, which presently has very strong support from the fossil record and the study of avian phylogenetics, that burrs are the descendants of saurians, that is, ancient reptiles, then the chicken-egg question is not really so silly. Put simply, millions of years before chickens existed, there were their ancestors, the dinosaurs, and these dinosaurs laid eggs, as other reptiles do in this modern age. Hence, uh, the egg predated the chicken by untold millennia. Now, if you ask me if the dinosaur or the egg came first, then we have an entirely different question. And the answer is pretty much the same. In fact, the answer will be almost the same every time. The egg came first. Amphibians preceded reptiles. They laid eggs. Fish preceded amphibians. They laid eggs. And so on, back for a very long time. We could argue as to what a definition of an egg is, whether uh, if you count it as an egg is only having a hard shell or not, and soft fish eggs you wouldn't really count as eggs, but then you would just be arguing semantics. My second listener letter came from Kevin Duvall, and he asked this, I wonder if I might request a topic for Science News Update. My concern is with physics and disaster movies. Kevin goes on to ask about three different popular disaster movies and their effects on nuclear power plants. First, in the movie Independence Day, after an alien attack with major cities in ruins and no physical structures remaining, what would be the effect on nuclear power plants? Well, given that energy weapons have destroyed entire cities in that movie, I imagine that a nuclear meltdown would be the last of your worries. However, yes, if a fission plant were only partially destroyed and the control rods left to go dry, you might get a meltdown and all that goes with that. If the building containing the power plant were entirely destroyed, however, you could immediately release massive amounts of radiation and radioactive material into the atmosphere. I don't believe it would become unstable enough to actually give you a nuclear explosion if the release was instantly made by a massive energy beam. But I'm not sure about that, and I am not a physicist. Perhaps someone out there would know better. Kevin then goes on to ask about the effects of drowning a nuclear power plant, the movie Deep Impact, and then freezing it under several stories of ice in the movie The Day After. Kevin, I will gladly admit I am not sure about either of those scenarios or what their effects would be. I know that this will probably not be the best answer, but I suspect that freezing the power plant would be a good thing to keep it from going critical. 
Two weeks ago, it was reported in the popular press that the Japanese government and the company that owns the Fukushima power plant want to build a frozen wall around the melted-down reactor. That frozen wall is going to cost about 32 billion yen. That's uh, about $320 million. And the government-funded project is supposed to surround the plant's four crippled reactors and their turbine building with an underground ice wall that's going to block groundwater from flowing into the building's basements and mixing with highly radioactive water leaks from the melted cores. If putting in those frozen blocks would help in Japan's Fukushima plant, I suppose it would certainly contain and control in a nuclear reactor if you actually froze it underneath the feet of ice. As far as a flood in a nuclear power plant is concerned, well, you'd get massive contamination of that water. I don't think you'd get any explosions. I don't think you'd get meltdowns. But any plant or animal life in the immediate area would be pretty much done in by the levels of radiation building up in the area. It would be the equivalent of Chernobyl with radiation just spurting out in water as opposed to the air. So even if you were not killed outright by the mass of asteroids striking the Earth or drowning in the huge tsunami following, you'd probably die of radiation poisoning once the nearby nuclear power plant was underwater. This is actually the problem in Fukushima right now. Huge amounts of contaminated groundwater. Imagine if the whole plant were in an ocean. It's been more than three years since the March 2011 meltdown, but the plant is still plagued by a massive amount of contaminated water. Repeated water leaks from storage tanks and other mishaps at the plant have hampered a decommissioning effort that's expected to take decades and continues to cause environmental concerns among local fishermen. By the way, if listeners are serious about wanting a nasty physics question answered, then I suggest you email Dr. Randall Monroe. Dr. Monroe is quite well known for his XKCD webcomic. He's a former NASA roboticist and specializes in answering thought questions that go well beyond the ordinary in a what-if section on his website. Like, could you build a billion-story building? Or, what would a mole of moles look like? Or, what if everybody on Earth jumped up and down at the same time? He's quite humorous and at the same time quite rigorous in his approach. I recommend him highly. Okay, enough listener stuff. Let's get on with the first story of the night. I have many years to go yet before retirement, but I don't look forward to it. As wacky as things get in my life, sometimes between all the myriad things I need to do for my job and my family, and, well, you listeners, I actually enjoy the challenge of trying to fit it all in. Much as I whine to my wife about needing a rest and or a vacation, when I actually go on vacation and do nothing, I get bored beyond belief and restless to actually do something, anything to occupy my mind and my time. I've never understood people who look forward to retirement so that they can go off and play golf and slowly wither on the vine. That's just not me. I need constant challenges to help me feel alive and I've been told that makes me a type A personality and will likely shorten my lifespan because I am constantly on the go. Well, here is new physiological evidence that suggests that perhaps I am not resting quite enough, but at the same time, becoming a redolent fool on a beach somewhere would be even worse. Research from the lab of Central Michigan University's Dr. Stephen P. Roberts in this month's Journal of Experimental Biology examines the effects of age and lifetime flight behavior 
on the flight capacity of fruit flies. When a honeybee embarks on its foraging career, the relentless schedule takes its toll, and most of the honeybees actually die within about three weeks. Intrigued by this aging process in insects, Roberts became keen to understand how flight, the most energetically expensive of behaviors known, affects senescence. However, he figured it was easier to study fruit flies than honeybees because they are much better characterized and simpler to work with. Roberts monitored how three populations of flies that experienced different amounts of flight activity during their lives fared as they aged. The first population could fly whenever they wished. The second group was completely kept from flying by loosely stuffing the insect's jar home with light wedding veil gauze. That only allowed the insects to walk around in the interior. They couldn't fly. The third population was also free to fly, but their jar was strapped to a shaker that was programmed to give the insects a brief nudge at random times during the day. Those nudges would frequently force them to take flight whether they wanted to fly or didn't want to fly. Then Roberts analyzed the insects' flight performance, weight, and metabolism as they aged, starting with 15-day-old youngsters and moving up to 35-day-old middle-aged insects and concluding with 65-day-old geriatric flies. They found out that the insects that had been allowed to fly whenever they wished fared pretty well. Testing the insects' ability to fly in low-density air where half of the nitrogen in the air has instead been replaced with helium, they found the majority flew well into middle age and that 30% were still able to take to the thin air in old age. However, when the team tested the flight performance of flies that had been forced to fly throughout their lives, they had essentially burned out. By 35 days, their metabolic rate had plummeted by 57%, and by 65 days, None of them were able to get off the ground in the helium-supplemented air. Roberts says that this dramatic decline was predictable because of wear and tear and the insects' increased exposure to toxic oxygen byproducts produced by their hectic flying lifestyles. The big surprise came when the team investigated the insects that had been prevented from flying. Instead of benefiting from their leisure, well, forced retirement, the couch potatoes paid a high metabolic price for their sloth. Roberts says, quote, Their flight ability was compromised the earliest and the most out of all of the treatment groups. By 65 days, none of the flies could get off the ground in the test atmosphere. However, unlike immobile humans, they had not gained any weight. Unquote. Roberts goes on to say that, quote, We didn't know what we were going to see with the no-flight group. It was possible that inactivity might slow down the aging process, but apparently it didn't. In fact, it exacerbated the insect's decline. Behavior can have profound effects on an organism's future. What it has done in the past has profound effects on how good its life may be in the future. Unquote. It seems to me that the lesson to be learned here is relax when you need to, but use it or lose it in the long run. No, Roberts does not say anything about what his work actually implies for humans. Speaking of aging, the body and genome of one of the oldest recorded human beings has been closely examined recently, and researchers are hoping that the data will give us clues to the human aging process 
and how to get around it potentially. Dr. Henne Holstig of the University Medical Center in Amsterdam headed the research team and just published the results of this amazing work in the Journal of Genome Research this month. Born in 1890, Hendrika van Andelschipper was the oldest and healthiest person in the world. She died at 115, and her brain was sharp as a tack until her death. Some people have described this as, quote, crystal clear cognition, unquote. Additionally, her heart and circulatory system were healthy, clean, and clear well until her death. And by the way, yes, I know my pronunciation of the names is awful. Please don't bother to correct me. I'm just going to mess them up again, no doubt. Back in June 2008, Holsteg said, following a post-mortem analysis of von Andelschipper's brain, that there was little indication of the kinds of problems you usually see in brains that old, like Alzheimer's disease. Normally, individuals who survive to extreme ages do have brain abnormalities. According to Holsteg, hers was the first known brain of such an advanced age that did not have any of these problems. At any rate, in the newest study, Holstig has now examined her blood and other tissues to see how they were affected by age. As is usual in cases like this, Holstig did not discover quite what she wanted, but she found something much more profound. It's been hypothesized that our lifespan might be ultimately limited by the capacity for stem cells to keep replenishing tissues day in and day out and replacing those tissues. Once our stem cells reach a state of exhaustion, it imposes a hard limit on their lifespan and our own as well. The stem cells themselves gradually die out and steadily diminish the body's capacity to keep regenerating vital tissues and cells such as blood. Holstig found that von Andelschipper's case, at her death, about two-thirds of the white blood cells remaining in her body originated clonally from just two stem cells. That finding implies that most or all of the blood stem cells von Andelschipper started life with had already burned out and died. Genetic analysis of the chromosomes of von Andelschipper's white blood cells showed drastically worn down telomeres as well. Telomeres, if you don't know, are the protective tips on eukaryotic chromosomes, and they burn down like candle wicks every time a cell divides. They're there to protect the actual coding DNA which would be worn away to literally nothing after a few generations without that protection. On average, the telomeres on von Andelschipper's white blood cells were 17 times shorter than those in the brain cells. Now that makes sense, since neurons hardly ever replicate at all throughout your whole life. Holsteg was able to determine the number of white blood cell generating stem cells by examining the pattern of mutations found within the blood cells. Quote, the pattern was so similar in all cells that we could conclude that they all came from one of two closely related mother stem cells, unquote. Basically, Holsteg did DNA fingerprinting and found which cells were related to what original parent cells. She only found two types of fingerprints, and she concluded that there were only two parent cells left. In young humans, there should be thousands of stem cell parents, not just two. It's been estimated by cell biologists that we're born with about 20,000 blood stem cells and that at any one time, around 1,000 are simultaneously active in replenishing our blood. So getting down to two is 
quite an issue. Holsteg says, quote, During life, the number of active stem cells shrinks, and their telomeres shorten to the point at which they die, a point called stem cell exhaustion. We found this in Henny von Andelschipper. We also found mutations in her two parental blood stem cells, which were all harmless. This is the first time that patterns of lifetime somatic mutations have been studied in such an old and such a healthy person. The absence of mutations posing dangers of disease and cancer suggests that she had a superior system for repairing or aborting cells with dangerous mutations. Unquote. Here's the upshot of the whole thing. Holsteg is suggesting that there's an upper limit to how long humans can live. Lots of gerontologists have suggested that with the right treatment, humans can have an indefinite lifetime. But Holsteg says that probably isn't the case. Quote, the human lifespan is limited by how long stem cells can stay healthy and replicate. Once they burn out and no longer replenish themselves, that will be the end. 110, 115, maybe 120 years at most, unquote. Holsteg doesn't just leave it at that, though. She decides to give us hope with a final statement. She says that one way of lengthening lives of the elderly may be with injections of stem cells saved from birth or early life. Yes, you will have to plan ahead on this. Quote, These stem cells would be substantially free of mutations and have full-length telomeres. If I took a sample now and gave it back to myself when I was older, I would have long telomeres again although it might only be possible with blood and not with any other tissues. Unquote. Long life would be a nice thing, but frankly I'm more interested in what kept von Andelschipper's brain in functioning shape into her hundreds. I don't know about you, but my brain seems to be failing already. Heart disease and cancer we have treatment for, but what kept that woman from getting Alzheimer's is what I really want to know. Okay, let's go from one extreme end of the spectrum, a woman at 115 years of age, to human infancy. What's your earliest memory? Age four? Age three? If you're really exceptional, you may remember back to age two. But is there anyone out there who can remember further back? What happened during your first few months of life? My earliest memory was being in the hospital at age three when I had my tonsils removed. I think I remember it pretty clearly because back in the 1960s, they did not allow parents to spend as much time with their hospitalized children as they do nowadays. Visiting hours were pretty much it. Whether you were a parent or not, that was it. I was probably a bit traumatized by that separation and being in a weird hospital situation. It didn't help that back then, some children's hospitals used beds that were a bit like cages, essentially cribs with bars over the top so a child couldn't escape. (laughs) Quite a memorable experience to a trapped three-year-old. Anyway, I suspect you will never come across anybody who can remember back as far as the first year of life. There's a very good reason for that. It may be physically impossible for us to remember our infancy. The reason for this may be explained in the May 9th volume of the journal Science by Dr. Paul W. Franklin, of the University of Toronto. The name of the article is Hippocampal Neurogenesis Regulates Forgetting During Adulthood and Infancy. Franklin's study in mice suggests that infants' memories may be wiped clean by the growth of new brain cells. The findings offered an explanation for why people cannot 
remember memories from their early childhood. Inspired by observations of his own toddler, Franklin wondered why young children couldn't retain memories of situations or events. These memories, like what a person ate for dinner, involves the hippocampus, a skinny, seahorse-shaped belt of tissue that stretches from ear to ear and houses a cell-making factory about the size of a couple of raspberries. This is the only part of the brain that normally cranks out new neurons, which help make memories. Franklin knew that such neuron production tapers off in childhood, and that's exactly when humans start to be able to form long-term memories. Since you can't exactly do experiments in human baby brains, Franklin's team turned to mice, who also harbor blank spots in their early memories. His group found that as mice age, the birth rate of neurons slows down. This drop-off matches up with the rodent's ability to remember scary situations, the researchers report. Franklin placed adult mice in a chamber noticeably different from their usual homes, with stripes on the walls and a vinegary smell and then he gave the animals mild foot shocks. The mice quickly learned to fear the stripy vinegar room, and even 28 days later would freeze up when put into the chamber. Infants didn't do as well in remembering the pain of the vinegar stripy room. A day after being shocked, their fear began to fade. The animal's behavior hinted that making new brain cells might be mucking up memory retention. Next, Franklin boosted neuron production, that is neurogenesis, in adult mice. He shocked adult mice in the striped room and then let them exercise at will on running wheels for weeks or days. Now, that seems like a really weird thing to do. Why did he let them run? This is kind of cool. Apparently, running naturally triggers the growth of new brain cells in the hippocampus. And just a few weeks of racing on the wheel helped the mice to forget their fear of the scary room. Other tricks to crank up the number of new neurons also cleared the adult animal's memories. The coolest thing was that the reverse worked too. By inhibiting or reducing the birth of new neurons in infant mice, that kept the fear memory alive in their little brains. Franklin states that, quote, these findings give a new twist to the role of neurogenesis in the hippocampus. Instead of merely making memories, spawning brain cells could help animals forget, unquote. This idea is very provocative because it goes against everything that neuroscientists have suggested over the last 10 or 20 years. Franklin thinks that the new cells could be messing up brain circuits laid down by pre-existing neurons. These cells link up with neighbors, but old memories made by using older links may be hard to call to mind when new links take over. It may be a little like overwriting a computer's hard drive. The new memories are erasing the old. Franklin finishes by suggesting that, quote, maybe forgetting is not a bad thing. Maybe it's good to clear away some memories and forget some things that are not so important, unquote. I think forgetting your infancy may be a wonderful thing. Could you imagine remembering eating baby food? Ew. Or getting your diapers changed? Talk about things that are not so important. The next story has the potential to be one of those world record things. Diamonds have not been the world's hardest substance for years now. They lost that title to man-made nanomaterials a while back. Now, two rare natural substances look likely to even leave those nanomaterials far behind. One is 18% harder than a diamond, and the other is 58% harder. 
Dr. Zai Cheng Pan of Shanghai University has modeled how two little studied molecules could be extraordinarily hard. The first of those two materials is wurzite boron nitride. It has a similar structure to diamond, but it's made up of boron atoms and not carbon atoms. The second material is the mineral lonsdaleite. This is a hexagonal diamond made from carbon atoms, just like regular diamonds, but they're arranged in a different shape. Only small amounts of versite boron nitride and lonsdaleite exist naturally or have been made in the lab. This is why no one has studied them very much and realized their superior strength to the diamond. Pan simulation showed that versite boron nitride would withstand 18% more stress than a diamond and lonsdaleite 58% more. If the results are actually confirmed with physical experiments, both of those materials would be far harder than any substance ever measured. There's just one problem. Doing the test is not going to be easy. Why? Because, as I already said, both of those materials are rare in nature. So it may be that the only way of working with them is to synthesize enough of them in laboratories to test Pan's predictions. Lonsdaleite is sometimes formed when meteorites containing graphite hit the Earth, while wurzite boron nitride is formed during volcanic eruptions that produce very high temperatures and very high pressures. Even though lonsdaleite may be harder, if Pan's hypotheses are confirmed, wurzite boron nitride may turn out to be more useful of the two. That's mainly because it's more stable in oxygen at higher temperatures than diamonds. This makes it an ideal substance to place on the tips of cutting and drilling tools operating at high temperatures, or as a corrosion-resistant film on the surface of a space vehicle, for example. Paradoxically, wurzite boron nitride's hardness appears to come from its flexibility of the bonds between the atoms that make it up. When the material is stressed, some of those bonds reorient themselves by 90 degrees to relieve the tension. Pan says, quote, Although diamonds undergo a similar process, something about the structure of wurzite boron nitride makes it nearly 80% stronger after the process takes place. This is an ability that diamonds don't have. Unquote. Pan's big problem now is to get single crystals of each of those materials to test his hypotheses. Unfortunately, so far there are no known ways to isolate or grow such crystals of either material. The last story of the night was pointed out by one of my colleagues here at Montclair State in the chemistry department. It's a very strange geology-chemistry-physics story that surrounds the mysterious valley of Hesdalen in Norway. The story appears in the journal New Scientist and is by Carolyn Williams. The story itself concerns Dr. Bjorn Gitle Hauge, an electrical engineer at Otsfold University in Halden, Norway. Hauge has been studying the Hesdalen Valley phenomenon. These phenomena are strange, hovering, flashing balls of light that have been appearing in a valley in central Norway for at least a century. Hauge states, quote, Sometimes the lights are as big as cars and can float around for up to two hours. Other times they zip down the valley before suddenly fading away. Then there are the blue and white flashes that come and go in the blink of an eye and daytime sightings that look like metallic objects in the sky, unquote. In 2012, Hauge presented a paper to the European Geologist Union indicating testimonies involving aerial lights in the vicinity of Hesdalen that could be traced back as far as 1811. 
Project Hezdalen was launched in 1983 at Ostfold University. Hauga and his group have identified at least six different types of energy states occurring in the valley. His observations have indicated the lights can appear in the low atmosphere, remaining quite fixed until suddenly moving upwards at speeds of several hundred kilometers per second. Lights might also plummet downward and disappear into the ground or into one of the many lake areas. The Hesdalen phenomenon can appear white, yellow, blue, flashing, and different shapes up to a few cubic meters in size, and the durations of these range from a few seconds up to minutes or more. The first thought anyone has when they hear about this is, UFOs! Aliens! They're here! Finally! Uh, But there's probably a much more prosaic explanation, if not way more complicated than aliens. Hauga has proposed that what people are seeing are plasma energy constructs. When a gas ionizes, it forms a cloud of ions and electrons. These ionized gases are called plasmas, and they release energy in the form of light when they recombine. Plasmas have been known to kill bacteria, and in the right conditions can even be cool enough to touch. Stranger still, plasmas don't have to admit visible light. They can sometimes glow in the infrared or the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. The only problem with this hypothesis is that plasmas don't just pop up in nature. They're hard to generate, and they're hard to maintain unless you're in a laboratory. Why? You need to raise temperatures to about 10,000 degrees centigrade to ionize a gas. That requires a huge amount of energy. Hauga's latest hypothesis, reported in The New Scientist, is that the unique geology of Hesdalen Valley could be responsible for this plasma. The valley is formed by rocks on one side that are rich in copper and rocks on the other that are rich in iron and zinc. And that's very similar to the cathode of the anode on a battery. Sulfuric acid leached from the abandoned sulfur mine at the bottom of the valley could then turn the river into an acid of an electrolyte. But where does the charge to energize the plasma come from? Well, it may actually be extraterrestrial after all, although not alien in origin. The Hesdalen phenomenon seems especially common after a display of the northern lights, reports Hauga, when solar wind ionizes the Earth's upper atmosphere. Hauga bemoans the fact that little money is being sunk into examining the phenomenon. Quote, if funding were present, we could find a solution. There are no people working full-time on this now. I could build logistics on the data with a main database. There would be better mapping of different physical properties in the Hesdalen Valley. There should have been camera recordings in the IR, UV, and the visual, a good radar system, better reporting system, and more cameras so the 3D mapping of the phenomenon could be done. Unquote. Even though this was all reported in a science journal, remember to take it with a grain of salt. The science is very neat and very promising, but it's still very speculative. Remember, this was not published by Hauga with actual scientific evidence. It was written essentially by a reporter for New Scientist who thought it was simply a cool story. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember, don't blame all those lights in the sky on aliens. Conserve those hippocampal neurons. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Till next time. This is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say? Thank you so much. 
So, that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Been a real special one for Starship Sova. Thank you so much. Do, just out of curiosity, do spread the word. You know, if you've enjoyed this, do spread the word of Starship Sova and all the others in the District of Wonders. Farfetch Fables is doing fantastic. Fingers crossed as well for Larry. He's, he's getting his tests sometime soon as well. So, a little prayer out to Larry until to terrify. That is it. Like I say, I hope you've enjoyed it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.